If you have not opened your Bibles, please do so to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. We're going to tackle this last section in this chapter. And as you all know, this Thursday is Thanksgiving. And so I want you to take a moment to imagine the meal that you are going to have on Thursday, whether it be with friends or with family. And I want you to imagine what is the best way that this meal could actually go down? Like, what, what is the best experience that this could be? Imagine it be something like this, that the meal itself is probably something potluckish. Like, people are uh, agreeing to bring various dishes and contribute overall to the feast that you're going to have. Or, or maybe you're the one in the family that makes all of the food, but people come and they help set the table. And so there's, there's a team effort to the meal. There are people helping set the table and helping prepare the food. And then when you sit down at this feast together, there's this flurry of activity where you're passing the dishes, you're passing the various parts of the meal. So it's past the turkey and past the mashed potatoes and past the sweet potato casserole and past the green bean casserole and past the cranberry sauce and past the bread. And everybody's just trying to find, cover every square inch of their plate with food. But when you're doing that, you're, you're passing, you're saying, here, you take some more. No, no, you take some more. So there's this wonderful sharing that takes place, right? where you want to make sure everybody gets enough, everybody gets to celebrate, everybody gets to stuff themselves. There's something fun about saying, here, have some more. And then as you're sitting and feasting and stuffing your face full of food, it's a time of celebration, laughter, sharing stories, maybe reflecting on what you're thankful for. Maybe there's even a few tears shed and there's encouragement offered, but it's wonderful conversation. It's a time where you're encouraging and sharing, and there's wonderful interacting with one another. And then after you have eaten all you can eat, it's time for dessert, right? So now it's past the pumpkin pie, and past the chocolate pie, and past the blueberry pie. There's so many pies. And then just before you all pass out into a food coma, it's time to clean up. Many hands make light work. And so everyone clears the table, shares the dishwashing duty. And there's this wonderful moment at the end of the day where you realize, wow, this was a beautiful time of family and friends where we shared a meal together. We served one another. We encouraged one another. We laughed together. There was the celebration of God's goodness to us together. And the sense of community has been built. Sense of relationship has been deepened. Now imagine a different scenario. Imagine that you or somebody is the only person who's making the food. Maybe this is your experience. I'm sorry if this is your experience. And that very same person who made the food is the same person who had to set the table. And then when everybody gets at the table, everybody is just grabbing as much as they can without caring about passing. So it's just like, I want to get as much food as I can get. I don't care if anybody, gets any, uh, anybody else gets anything. And then while people are eating, somebody dominates the conversation. So we only talk about what this person wants to talk about. And then these two people over here start getting into an argument about politics. And now everybody is fighting. And then people start complaining. 
because the turkey is dry, or I wanted sweet potato casserole, but there's, there's stuffing, and I don't like this kind of stuffing, and, and why couldn't we have cherry pie instead of blueberry pie, because I like cherry pie. And so the whole time, everybody is more concerned about themselves than they are the group. Everybody is selfishly trying to get what they want out of the meal rather than sharing with other people. And then after everything is done and the mess has been made, the same person who made the food and set the table is left to clean up. I'm sorry if that's your experience at Thanksgiving. If that is what you have to look forward to on Thursday, man, we honestly say this, I'll pray for you. I am sorry. Because what we recognize in that scenario is the pain and the disappointment and the dysfunction of that cuts a little bit deeper. It it, it hurts a little bit more. Why is that? Because something that is meant to be powerfully unifying, an experience that is meant to be about growing together as family and friends, uh, an experience that is meant to be about sharing and serving and celebrating together becomes shot through with selfishness. And when that happens, when something that is meant to unify people becomes a place of selfishness, the pain cuts deeper, the disappointment goes deeper, and the damage done is immense. This is, this is what happens, friends, when, when something that is designed to be, uh, that, that creates this, this unifying effect, something that is meant to build intimacy with people is twisted and distorted and becomes selfish, the damage is intensified. Let me give you an unrelated example. Sex. Sex is meant to be this beautifully unifying, intimate experience between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. It's meant to intense and deepen their relationship. It's supposed to create deeper intimacy. And when that gets twisted, the damage done is immense. The power to create that intimacy, when it is turned and twisted and distorted, has a destructive power like nothing else. So it is with anything that is meant to create unity, that's meant to be a self-giving act. When that is distorted and twisted and becomes selfish, the damage done is immense. And this is the dynamic the Apostle Paul is pointing to here at the end of 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord's Supper, an act of worship that was meant to unify the people of God and deepen their relationship with one another, and deepen their unity in Christ, was being used selfishly. Friends, Christian worship, Christian community is meant to be this deeply unifying, deeply relational, deeply self-giving experience. And yet, when we twist it, and we distort it, and we make it selfish, and we make it about us, The damage that is done spiritually, relationally, emotionally is immense. And this is what God's word confronts us with this morning. Is our selfishness, is our status seeking such that we are taking things that are meant to create unity and deep relationship and twisting them in such a way that we're creating actual damage relationally, and spiritually. The title for my message this morning 
is table manners. And here is the main point for us. The people of Christ worship and live as those united by the cross of Christ. The people of Christ worship and live as those united by the cross of Christ. This is what Paul is going to drive at to the Corinthians, and this is what God's word presses us on this morning. And Paul begins this section, this ending section, by highlighting, yet again, another place of division within the Corinthian church. Here's what he writes in verses 17 and 18. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And so Paul says, what should have been this great unifying experience for you guys... (laughs) This moment where the church's community and unity are deepened and and you are stronger together, something that should make you more relationally healthy and spiritually healthy is actually a site, another site, another source of division. And I don't want you to miss the irony of what Paul is saying here because you would think that any time Christians gather together, that would be a good thing. I mean, you consider this time of COVID and the, the challenges that we have faced in the past and, and some places are still facing where Christians aren't able to gather as they would. And you think of places where Christians are persecuted. And, and so we think, hey, when Christians gather, that is always something that is good. We're commanded to gather. We should never neglect that. Here, Paul is saying it's bad for you guys to gather. Actually, it does more harm than good. On the, if you, if you want to weigh this out, it's actually better that you didn't gather than if you did gather. That is a profound statement to say. If a church is so unhealthy that Paul says it's actually worse for you to gather, you know things have gone sideways. You know things have gotten dangerous. You know things have gotten bad. First City Church, could you imagine the Apostle Paul looking at First City Church and saying, hey, when you gather, it's not for the good. Can you imagine someone looking at your gospel community and going, hey, when you gather, it's not for the good. And yet here the Corinthians were. Were Christian gathering, something that should have been good, should have been healthy, had become destructive and unhealthy. And what was happening? Why? Well, they were twisting the practice of the Lord's Supper. Verses 20 and 21, this is what he writes. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. What is going on here? Well, the exact circumstances are a little bit hard to piece together. We don't have a lot of information. But kind of judging based on cultural practice, we can can kind of get an idea of what was probably happening. So in Roman culture at the time, those who had large enough houses to host people, the way those houses were constructed is when you walked in, there would be an open room called an atrium. And then all the other rooms of the house would be kind of off that atrium. And if you had a big enough house and you were wealthy enough, you had a formal dining area. And so what would happen when you hosted a party is the most important people that you knew, the movers and shakers, the the people that you wanted to be in good with that gave you status and standing, well, they ate in your dining hall. And if they ate in your dining hall, they got 
served right away. They got the best food. And then those who were kind of at a second-tier status, those who wanted to be associated with you, but, but you kind of like, yeah, you're like JV friends. Like, you can come over to my house, but you don't really do anything for me. So guess what? You get to hang out in the atrium. You, you, you can come to my house, but you have to hang out in the atrium. And, and, and just to let you know, the people in the atrium, they get served a little bit later. And really, if there's any food left over, maybe you'll get something. And the food that you get might not be as good as what everybody else is getting in the dining hall. And so going to a party, hosting a dinner party, actually began to divide people socially. It was a way to affirm status, to gain status, to, to associate with particular people. You wanted to eat in the dining hall because if I ate in the dining hall of this person, that means I was in, I was important. This is the way Roman culture would function. And what was happening is that the Christians were treating the Lord's Supper this way. The way they were structuring the Lord's Supper was the same way that a Roman, a powerful person in Roman society would structure a dinner party. Now, when they ate the Lord's Supper, it was more of a meal and not like a snack, kind of like we do. And so the, the, the dynamic felt more like a meal. And so this is why Paul can say, hey, when you come together to eat and the way you're eating together when you're doing the Lord's Supper, it more reflects like a dinner party. And so what you had what happened is Christians were dividing. If you were important, if you had status, if you could somehow make me look good, we'll come into my dining hall. But if you were weaker, lesser standing, hang out in the atrium. Those in the dining hall, you got the food right away. You got the best stuff. Those in the atrium, you were lucky if you got anything at all. And not only that, not only were they dividing, the people in the dining hall were indulging. Let's get drunk. Let's eat all we can. Let's drink all we can. It's a party after all. And so they were abusing the food. They were taking without any regard for anybody else. Just like someone sitting down at a Thanksgiving dinner and just eating all they can, eating all they want, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And so what you had happening is a meal that was meant to unify the church, a meal that was to reflect, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all one. We're all unified. It was actually dividing people socially. It was actually making the pain of social division, the pain of second-tier status, evident. And Paul says, this should not be. This is why he says, hey, when you gather, you're not actually eating the Lord's Supper. You're eating your own supper, meaning you're not actually celebrating the Lord. You're doing your own thing. What you are doing is actually a disgrace. You are harming those of lesser status, and you're disgracing the church. This is why he says, hey, if you're going to do this, you might as well just stay home. You might as well just stay home and eat your own meal and carry out that practice. Paul was fired up, frustrated, and going hard after their practice of the Lord's Supper and the way they were taking something that meant to unify people it was actually causing damage and division in the church. And he also points out that God was having none of it as well. This is what he writes in verse 27 and then 29 and 30. So then when whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. In your selfishness and pride, and you're misusing the Lord's Supper, here's what's happening, church. You're not just causing divisions and harm relationally. You're actually sinning against the very body and blood of the Lord. And your selfishness and status-seeking and trying to use the Lord's Supper to assert your position in the church, you're sinning against the Lord. Jesus will not be your status symbol. You cannot use Jesus to gain status for yourself. You cannot use Jesus selfishly and think, I can use Christ as a way to promote my standing in the church, and Jesus just shrug his shoulders about that. God is not going to look at the abuse of one of his sacraments, uh, something that he has given to the church in order to unify us in Christ and watch his people abuse it and shrug his shoulders. That's what was happening. God was bringing judgment. People were sick, people were ill, and people were falling asleep. That doesn't mean they were taking a nap. It means God was dropping them dead. Now, does that seem a little harsh? may feel that way. But when you consider the damage that is done in churches, when people use Jesus Christ to grab status and power and they harm and they hurt other people, it makes absolutely sense that God would do this. If you have ever experienced those scars, that pain, that wounding, if you've ever been on the other end of someone status-seeking and using power and using Jesus to somehow justify it, you know how much that hurts. You know the damage and the destruction that does. And I know there are people in this room that wear those scars. People in this room that are still recovering from those scars because that, that, that takes a long time to recover from. And to think that God would just look at that and shrug his shoulders... Friends, do we think God is that cruel, that indifferent, that God doesn't care about the holiness of his church and the health of his people? No, God was bringing judgment because the damage and the destruction was immense and deep. And here's what we need to come to grips with, that if we do this, yeah, I don't think that sickness and God dropping people dead is something that happens in every church in every circumstance. It's probably unique to this situation. But you better believe God sees it and God will address it and God will do something about it. And so let, let, me, let me, if I can just say this for a second as a side, like if you carry those scars and that wounds, those wounds and that pain, hey, here's what this passage tells you. God sees you. God sees that. He's not indifferent to it. He cares deeply about that. And conversely, if you're the person doing this, God sees you, and you're not getting away with it, it may be time before God does something about it because he's given you a chance to repent and turn from that. But believe me, God will deal with you. And if he has to deal with you harshly, he will for the sake of the good of other people, the glory of his name, and the health of his church. Strong rebuke here, church. Strong warning here, church. Because God cares deeply about his people. He cares about the unity of his church. And so here's what we have to ask. 
Are we like the Corinthians? Now, obviously, no one's getting drunk at communion at First City Church. We don't give you enough to do that. <laughs> we don't have an atrium. We don't have a dining hall where some people are over here and others are over here. Like, there are ways that what we, the way that they did things is not the way we do things. So, of course, we're not sinning exactly like they were. However, friends, we need to ask ourselves, we need to be honest, are we selfish about the ways that we engage community? Do we use church community as a way to gain status for ourselves? Are we being selfish about the way we use other people and engage other people in this church? Yeah, it might not be as severe. It might not be as hostile. It might not look outwardly the same thing, but we can still be selfish. Like, do you come on Sundays and consume this experience and this worship? Is it all about you? Like, is it about you coming here so you can experience some good feels? Is it you come here so that you can appear a certain way to other people? Are you consuming worship? In gospel community, are you in community because you're trying to feel an emotional and relational whole? You're using other people to make you feel better about yourself. Are you in gospel community and you're trying to assert a sort of status and standing? You want people to think about you in a certain way. Do you use people for your own gain? It's the same kind of selfishness. And also, don't miss this. When we do that, we're creating division. Again, it might not be as hostile, it might not be as obvious, but we're creating division. Because when you want to use people for your own gain, your own standing, here's what you do. You use them, and then you move on. And then you use other people, and then you move on. Or you're just going to move towards those people that are like you because you can get something from them, and then when you're done, you'll move on. And what do we have? People dividing People only hanging out with people that they can get something from. Someone that only benefits me. And what's the fruit of that, church? Shallow relationships. People who are guarded. Relational hurt. Those who will never open up to other people and they become cynical about relationships. No one is actually opening up and confessing sin because no one trusts each other. There's no discipleship that's actually happening. There's no one that has joy in Jesus because the relational temperature of the room is so toxic. No one is welcoming other people so that they can know Christ. Friends, when we are selfish in community, when we use one another, when we try to create, grab after status and standing in the church, immense damage is done. Friends, the people of Christ are to worship and to live as those united under the cross of Christ. And when we forget our table manners, when we become selfish at the table, when we become selfish in community, we take something that is meant to build a deep relational unity and we do damage to one another. This is what Paul was confronting. And in order to break them out of their spell, here in verses 23 through 26, Paul drops the instruction about what the Lord's Supper is to mean. Now, why does Paul do this? Why in the middle of this rebuke does he drop this sort of instruction about what the Lord's Supper is? Well, if you consider the context, selfish, 
self-centered, clicky Christians using the Lord's Supper for their own gain. And then Paul is going to reorient them and remind them, hey, in light of what this meal is, knock it off. (laughs) In light of what this meal is, you need to live differently. And what is it about this meal that Paul highlights? Well, there's two prepositional phrases. For you, of me. He first says that Jesus instructed that this is my body given for you. So in contrast to all the selfishness, in contrast to all the let me get standing in the community, let let me assert myself so that I can be better than others, here is Jesus saying, my body given for you. Utterly and completely contradictory selfishness. Jesus gives himself for you, for us, self-giving. This is the nature of the table. This is the nature of our Lord and Savior. This is the nature of our community. And then of me, do this in remembrance of me. Look, this meal is not about you. This meal is not about status, Corinthians. This meal is not about you, how much food you can consume to show that you're a party animal and that you have status and standing in the community and look how great and awesome you are. This meal is about Christ. And when you remember that it's about Christ, it fundamentally alters the way you engage it. You aren't going to be grabbing after status. You aren't going to be selfishly engaging it. You're not going to be using other people. Rather, your eyes are going to be fixed on Christ. Your heart is going to be oriented to Christ. Your life will be oriented to Jesus. And then when we all do that together, we're united in Christ But friends, don't miss this. We talk a lot about being united in Christ, and that is true. But the nature of our unity has a particular shape. The nature of our unity has a particular focus and bent. We're not just united in Christ. We're united in the cross of Christ. Our unity has a cross-shaped bent to it, meaning this is a self-giving unity. Just as our Lord gave of himself, The unity that he has brought together and shaped is self-giving unity. We exercise our unity. We live out the unity. We glorify Christ. We make it about him when we start giving ourselves to one another. When we stop being selfish, when we stop using one another, and we start serving one another. It's a cross-shaped unity. We're united under the cross of Christ. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that. It reminds us we're all sinners. We all need Jesus We all need to be forgiven. We all need to be transformed. And through the grace of Christ, we have been if we have put our faith in Jesus. And now those who have been transformed by the cross of Christ, we now go and live as Jesus lived. We now go and give our lives to one another. It's a cross-shaped unity. That's why Paul drops this instruction of the Lord's Supper right here. He says, church, if you get and you understand what this table means, your life is going to look a lot different the way you engage community is going to look a lot different. The people of Christ, the people of Christ, worship and live as those united by the cross of Christ. And how do we do this? Well, I want to give you two categories from this passage. Repentant hearts and open arms. Repentant heart and open arms. In verse 28, Paul says, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we must examine our hearts, meaning we need to be honest about our sin. 
Like, this needs to be a community of honesty, where we recognize, hey, we're sinners, sin lives in my heart, sin lives in your heart, and it's very easy for us to get ensnared into it and caught into it. It's very easy for us to become selfish. It's the air we breathe, friends. It's the culture that we swallow. And so we need to have hearts that are constantly examining, is my heart oriented to Christ or oriented to self? Am I self-giving in community or am I selfish in community? And so when we come into worship, when we come into community, we have hearts that are sensitive to the sin that lives there, and so we're examining them. We're judging ourselves. We're recognizing if there's anything in us that needs to be repented of. We don't just go, oh, there's sin in my heart. Oh, look at that. No, we repent. We turn from it, turn from the selfishness, and turn to Christ. Repentant hearts. And here's the good news for us. If we take responsibility for our sin, then the Lord doesn't need to light us up. As Paul writes in verses 31 and 32, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Paul tells the Corinthians, hey, if you judge yourself, if you examine your hearts and you turn from your sin, the Lord won't need to blow you up. He won't need to light up the community and bring that judgment and bring that rebuke and bring that correction. But here's also the good news for us. That judging, that discipline, that correction, it's for our good. Like the Lord loves his people and when he sees his people at odds with one another and fighting one another, he does something about it because he loves us and he's correcting us. Here's what Hebrews 12 says. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, this is not saying, I am not saying that everything, every suffering in your life means that the Lord is disciplining you and rebuking you. Sometimes that just means you live in a fallen, broken world and it's hard and you suffer and things happen. But sometimes the Lord brings suffering brings rebuke, brings hardship in order to wake us up and stir us out of our sin. And First City Church, if we get caught in selfishness, if this community becomes selfish, we should expect, we should hope that God would discipline us. Because if he doesn't, it means we don't belong to him. But what this means then is that as the Lord brings correction, as the Lord stirs things in this community, we should lean into it. We should ask the Lord, Lord, what do you have for us? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to, to turn from selfishness and turn to Christ? And, and so the Lord stirs in us that we may examine our hearts and have hearts that are repentant, repentant hearts. If we are going to push back against the selfishness that our culture is feeding us whole hog, if we're going to push back on the selfishness that lives in our own hearts, if we're not going to be like the Corinthians who use community and use worship for their own gain and their own status, then we need to have repentant hearts. 
hearts that are sensitive to sin, hearts that are sensitive to selfishness, hearts that are willing and ready when called out, when made aware, will say, yes, that is sin. I turn from that sin and I turn to Christ. Because when we turn to Christ, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's renewal, and a community is built. A community is strengthened. Unity is maintained. Repentant hearts. But also, open arms. In verse 33, Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Our posture at the table of the Lord's Supper, our posture in worship, our posture with one another in community should be welcome. Open arms towards one another. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says something similar. He says, therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. The overflow of repentant hearts, the overflow of those soft hearts that will turn from selfishness and pride and status-seeking, open arms, where we welcome one another, where we move toward one another, where we give of ourselves for others and we invite others close because we want to love people. We want to serve others. And where this gets hard, yet where this is the most important, is people not like us. People that are different. All throughout Scripture, one of the signs of the gospel is Jesus bringing people together that have no business being in community together. Jews and Gentiles didn't get along in the ancient world, and yet Christ made one people out of them. Rich and poor don't get along, still don't get along, still struggle, yet Christ brought them together. People from different ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds, Christ brings them together as one people. The sign of the gospel, the power of the gospel on display is when people say those human things that can separate us mean nothing in the light of Christ, mean nothing in the light of his people and his church. And so First City Church, let me start by just commending you for something. Over and over again, when I sit down with new folks to the church, here's what I consistently hear from people. Never been in a church that was more welcoming. Now, I don't know how many churches people have been in throughout their life, but consistently hear that the people of First City are welcoming. So I want to just commend you on that. that. That is fantastic. That is a sign of the gospel at work in your heart, gospel hospitality. It's a beautiful picture of how the Spirit is at work, and there's a sensitivity that you guys have. And so keep, let's keep having that sensitivity. Let's, let's keep welcoming people to First City Church. Let's keep having our arms open and displaying this, this openness and this welcome that God's Word calls us to. At the same time, at the same time, we need to recognize that there are places where even in our community, there's still those, even though they're a part of this, they may feel a little bit on the outside. Here's what I mean. Like 95% of our church, families. Married couples with kids. Like if you are married and you have kids, you are in the vast majority demographic of First City Church. Nothing wrong with that. That's just the reality. God bless us. We're a church made up largely of families. But what this means, if you're not in that demographic, if you're not married with kids, then that means that the predominant community around you is not like you. And for those of us that are in the predominant community, it is on you to open your arms. It's on you to welcome those because in many ways, you have the cultural capital. You have the cultural power, so to speak. 
And so when you see someone who's different than you, it's on you to welcome them, to bring them closer so that they feel a vital part of this community. So let me just give an example here. There are not a lot of singles at First City Church, but boy, I am thankful for the ones that are here. I, 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 couldn't, I, I just couldn't express just how thankful I am for those that are part of this church that are single. And I also want you to know, the fact that you're single, it's not a deficiency. I know some of you want to be married and you're praying for that, but, but you being single is not a deficiency. And we want you to be part of this church, and I hope more singles come to this church. But the only way that's going to happen is if those of us who are married with kids welcome them, who, who look at the singles and go, hey, you're not just free babysitting. You're actually a vital part of this community. You're not just somebody that I can kind of look at and go, oh, let me find someone to go hook you up. Let's go, let's go find someone you can get married to, but rather say, hey, that's my brother, that's my sister, and I want them to be part of this community. I want to love you right where you are. I don't want to do anything that would make you feel like you're in the atrium while the rest of us are in the dining room. That the, the way we would engage community say, no, we're unified, brothers and sisters together. And that takes work. That's hard sometimes. But listen, if you are in the predominant demographic, the, the bulk of the work falls on you. Those of you that have are sort of in the position of strength, and you're like, I don't feel strong. I'm married and kids, and that, that leaves me in a place of weakness a lot of times. Yes, I'm not denying that that is hard. But when we're talking about being in community together, when we're talking about people feeling connected and unified in Christ as vital parts of the community, when you're outside of the major demographic, the main demographic, it can be hard. And so church, let's do well to walk as those who are unified. Let's have open arms. And it's not just the singles. It's anybody who looks different. Those of you that are here in this room that don't have white skin, and we're glad you're here. We want you to be here. Those of you who English isn't your first language, we're glad you're here. We want you to be here. And it is on us to welcome you to open up our arms. And church, that is the overflow of repentant hearts. The overflow of hearts that say, I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to consume. Rather, I want to be like my Lord who gives, who gave, who laid down his life for his people, who welcomes people who are broken and sinful, who welcomes people who were messy, who welcomed people who others had rejected and others had turned away and given up on. First City Church, this passage brings strong warning. This passage points us to what happens when the very things that are meant to create unity get twisted and the damage that's done. But on the flip side of that, it also points us to the kind of community that I hope we all prayerfully want to be. The kind of community that walks in repentance and humility and has open arms. The kind of community that is defined by the table, the Lord's Supper, defined by a table that says all who put their faith in Christ, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your gifting, you're welcome in Christ. And you have a family. You have brothers and sisters that you are connected to and united to because of Jesus. That's what defines us. That's what keeps us together. The people of Christ worship 
and live as those united by the cross of Christ. Let's pray.